1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
0: On this episode, the paranormal lawyer discusses the USS Nimitz UFO incident and a memo which appears to confirm the existence of a special access program attempting to back engineer a downed alien craft.
2: You can imagine back in 2002, Dr. Eric Davis is sitting in the back seat of Admiral Wilson's staff car, asking him for an hour and 10 minutes of what he knows about UFOs, these unacknowledged secret access programs that are reverse engineering the technology, and the things that he has learned about the whole idea of uh, aliens visiting the planet etc it would it could have been I, I can see the movie in my mind right now. I want to tell you about something I discovered recently called
0: carbon60. I call it the miracle molecule. Now you might remember an interview I did recently with a researcher Chris Burris who's looking to help people who experience pain, inflammation, loss of sleep, or lost mental acuity with his new C60 company, c60evo.com. He has a product which is a consumable form of carbon-60 called ESS60 that's been proven in peer-reviewed, published research to extend the lifespan of test rats by 90% while allowing them to live tumor-free. That's pretty amazing. Those rats were given the C60Evo.com formula. The formula is a powerful antioxidant, 172 times more powerful than vitamin C, and it's known to be a powerful anti-inflammatory. C60 is based on Nobel Prize winning chemistry. I highly recommend ESS60. The mighty Aphrodite and I take a tablespoon every morning and we're both pain-free and sleeping better than ever. Discover the benefits of carbon 60, I call it the miracle molecule, ESS60, from c60evo.com. Now, make sure to use the coupon code RS1SPEC. That's RS1SPEC. Buy today at c60evo.com. That's c60evo.com. And don't forget the code RS1SPEC. This product has not been assessed by the FDA and is not intended to diagnose, treat or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider.
1: Here's Richard Serrett.
0: Welcome to your Monday. Michael Hall is a ufologist, and he's known as the paranormal lawyer. He's standing by from the state of Washington to discuss his role in releasing the 15-page memo written by Dr. Eric Davis after his meeting with Admiral Thomas Ray Wilson, in which they discussed an unacknowledged special access program, uh, which was attempting to back-engineer alien technology. This memo is being called the UFO Document Leak of the Century, and Michael will also talk about the Tic Tac UFO incident, also known as the USS Nimitz UFO incident, which was a radar visual encounter of numerous unidentified flying objects shaped like Tic Tacs which were identified by U.S. fighter pilots of the Nimitz Carrier Strike Group off the coast of San Diego back in 2004. The gun camera video from one of the fighter jets was released around the same time as the December 17th, 2017 New York Times article which detailed the existence of a secret UFO study group inside the Pentagon called ATIP, Advanced Aerial Threat Identification Project. Michael Hall is an attorney, a doctor of jurisprudence, and former Superior Court judge. He's a certified mediator and the founding partner of the Hall Law Firm. He's an experienced UFO field investigator for the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. He's a longtime consultant to the Mutual, UFO Network MUFON, and the attorney of record for the National UFO Reporting Center. He's an experiencer himself, and Michael has also represented such noted ufologists and researchers as Grant Cameron, Chief Petty Officer Kevin Day, Peter Davenport, Dr. Richard Haynes, and Dr. James Harder.
2: Michael Hall, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? Oh, I'm doing really great, Richard. Thank you for uh, asking me to come on. I am uh, really looking forward to our time together. For sure. So, a lawyer, paranormal uh,
0: UFO researcher, quite a unique intersection uh, of careers. How did the two come together?
2: Uh, Oh, you know, it's kind of like yourself. You know, the the polymorphs of the world, you know, kind of stick together, I think. Uh, Literally, uh, I had always been interested in the 14, the paranormal the supernatural, I think, most of my life, uh, ever since I was a kid. I was always, you know, buying those uh, garage sale uh, dime novels, you know, from George Adamski and, uh, you know, uh, George Van Tassel about the contactees as a kid. Of course, the comic books really started me off, you know, uh, actually all the superheroes and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I got older in life and uh, kind of got into the ufology thing heavily. I, started out as uh, uh, an APRO field investigator for the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. That's Jim and Coral Lawrenson's group out of Arizona there. Uh, James Harder was the uh, chief scientist at that time for that group and uh, just kind of kept going, kept going. And when I became a a lawyer, uh, finally, in my adult years, I brought that that passion, I think, for the unique and paranormal, to uh, my profession, and then was able to uh, literally start uh, representing uh, various uh, uh, people in the uh, uh, researchers and scientists and and uh, paranormal specialists in the fields of uh, various areas: ufology, Bigfoot, uh, you know, even ghosts and those kinds of things. So I've really enjoyed being able to um, be on the inside track of some of these unique developments that have been happening, uh, as you know, very recently here in the field of the paranormal. Uh,
0: when I think of a lawyer, I think of a critical thinker. I think of someone who is very analytical. Uh, so what, how do you approach, let's say, your UFO research differently as a lawyer than someone else might?
2: Well, you know, uh, I, I really enjoy um, the anecdotal evidence that people tell you about, you know, their stories. Everyone has the story of something unique that has happened uh, to them. Uh, and ever since, by the way, the New York Times article uh, came out on December 16th of 2017, confirming, you know, that the government says UFOs exist. And they've been studying them for uh, quite a while with millions of dollars worth of tax money. People, I think, have become uh, less and less reticent to talk about their unique experiences. So um, that's been good for me to uh, kind of be able to uh, use the analytical skills that you get, you know, in law school uh, to actually find out if you can get beyond that anecdotal evidence and to maybe fact-based evidence that uh, people can, uh, even scientists can, uh, you know, use and. And mull over and try to get closer to the truth. So that's what I'm, I'm looking for. I'm looking for the actual evidence you could bring to a court of law.
0: Interesting. Right. Because, yeah, we're never going to push the needle in this arena until we start really examining the evidence and, and approaching it in this way. Does it work the opposite way as well? Because I've asked you how your, your legal background affects your UFO research. Does, it, does your UFO research affect how you
2: practice law? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I always tell people that uh, being a lawyer is more a counselor at law than anything else. The idea being that uh, you have to uh, basically um, counsel your clients uh, through the tr- uh, transition that they're going through in a specifically stressful time of their life. Uh, that's very important. So, in reality, when you have oh, kind of a, maybe an out-of-a-box uh, point of view that you are bringing to uh, analytical uh, issues of the law, you probably have a better bedside manner than than most people who are just out there. Give me the facts, ma'am. You know, and here is the solution. So I, I kind of pride myself in in being able to give a holistic approach to uh, people that have uh, general legal problems, but then also uh, folks in the paranormal that are dealing with. Uh, the legal issues that they have to work with as well.
0: And you worked with Peter Davenport, the director of the National UFO Reporting Center. How? What, what did you do for Peter?
2: You know, Peter, gosh, uh, I've been his uh, lawyer for the uh, for New Fork and for himself personally for probably almost 30 years now at this point. Um, initially, it was just starting out, you know, helping him create his corporate entity, you know, for the National UFO Reporting Center making sure that uh, he is uh, protected from any personal liability if he had some uh, lawsuits against uh, the corporation, those kinds of things. Uh, And then I I mentioned earlier uh, in our conversations off the air that I I literally have helped him purchase an abandoned Nike missile site in eastern Washington where he has moved uh, his database to as well out there. Uh, And uh, all sorts of interesting things come up, including... Uh, having to deal with uh, uh, the U.S. military, Air Force, and uh, Army, and those kinds of things in uh, dealing with uh, how he gets his information periodically from uh, various uh, FAA and military uh, uh, airport towers around the country uh, and making sure that he has a clear line of communication with people who want to report UFO sightings. And the first thing they'll do is call their area uh, you know, uh, airport tower, and say, "Well, who do I call?" I just saw something strange, and uh, so we've kind of had that interface as well with law enforcement and and the military. You you sat on the superior court bench. I'm just curious. Uh, I mean, obviously,
0: uh, you know, there's been a sea change in in terms of. Uh, the attitude of, of the media and so forth towards the UFO arena, as you say, since the December 2017 New York Times article. But when you were sitting on the Superior Court bench, is at that time did you have to kind of keep that 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 aspect of your life kind of quiet?
2: <laughs> you know, that's uh, it's kind of always been hard for me to keep my interest in the paranormal quiet. All of my colleagues, Uh, in the legal profession have known of my interest right from the beginning when I uh, joined the bar back in 1988 here in the state of Washington. And in reality, um, just uh, last October, my state bar association in their uh, monthly um, publication did a feature article on the paranormal lawyer and actually interviewed me. It was a good article, I thought. So that was fascinating. And I've been really amazed with uh, the lack of blowback that I've received from my colleagues, uh, either on the bench or uh, in in the bar, uh, to the idea that there should be a little bit of, uh, you know, deference made at at least to people's testimony when they give it to you uh, to find out where they're coming from. If uh, if it doesn't really fit into a square peg, maybe it shouldn't have to fit into that square peg. But of course, uh, on the bench, you have to be totally partial, impartial and uh, fair, of course. So you're not going to be bringing your uh, personal uh, biases or opinions into uh, the job of being a judge. Uh, on, on uh, the Superior Court or any other court level as well. I've been a pro tem as well on the municipal court level, uh, dealing with, uh, you know, traffic fines and all those kinds of things. So uh, I think basically the idea that if you have an open mind and uh, are willing to t- treat people with some respect, that uh, you get that respect in return. You've talked about one of your proudest accomplishments to date uh,
0: has been the role that you played in uh, the Core Secrets Transcript. This was, uh, well, I first found out about it uh, during an interview with uh, Richard Dolan. Uh, it's been described as the UFO leak of the century. And uh, first of all, for those not familiar with the uh, uh, the Core Secrets Transcript, this um, a conversation between a, a scientist and Admiral Thomas Ray Wilson, uh, former Intelligence Director for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, tell us, uh, give us a, a bit of the background, and then we'll get into your
2: role in uncovering it. Well, yes, definitely. This is in reality um, a major development in ufology. Um, my my client Grant Cameron was the gentleman who initially uh, got a hold of this document, uh, literally back in November of uh, 2018, and in January of 2019, just last year. Uh, I get a cryptic, uh, text from, from Grant. It says, uh, uh, Michael, I am about ready to drop a major UFO information bomb and I need it to run it by you as the paranormal lawyer first. (laughs) And I'm just going, oh my gosh, if Grant Cameron is telling me that he has a major UFO information, uh, issue that he's going to release, it must be huge. And literally it was, um, Grant, of course, was uh, speaking at uh, a conference like he uh, always does, was approached uh, by a gentleman by the name of James Rigney from Australia, who literally uh, had come across some documents from the Edgar Mitchell estate once Edgar Mitchell passed away uh, and literally found this 15 page action packed smoking gun memo that Richard Dolan literally calls the the leak of the century, as far as ufology goes. And I was the one who actually uh, sent uh, Richard Dolan the actual full copy, the first full copy of this document once it was uh, released finally on Twitter. Uh, Because in the interim since January of 2019 till about June 27th, when it was actually released, uh, Grant Cameron and I were trying to vet this document to make sure it wasn't a hoax. It wasn't, uh, you know, something that had misinformation in it, uh, and we were trying to figure out the best way to deal with this potential, uh, really huge idea that uh, aliens exist. And Roswell, New Mexico, happened, and uh, we have advanced craft that can travel through intersp- interstellar space and uh, through our atmosphere, underwater and through dimensions that's all mentioned in this memo uh, when in reality it was actually released um, i was able to download it off of uh, reddit at the time uh, and clean it up so that it was uh, had all of the um, pop-up ads off the document you could, you could read all 15 pages and i literally sent it to richard dolan at about 3:30 a.m on a saturday morning Uh, before he uh, opened it up that day and came out with a most amazing analysis of his own of the details of that document, because he had actually seen two pages of this exact same memo seven years prior to that. And what stood out in his mind was the language that he couldn't write down or take a photograph of. But he remembered it said alien technology, not of this world not made by human hands and in reality that kind of uh, clinched the thing for him and the fact that uh, this fit right into exactly what he read seven years earlier and now in much more detail
0: and th- this this 15 page memo was written by uh dr eric davis an associate of of hal uh, Putoff. um a um a scientist who delves into things like z- zero-point energy and uh, I guess he was a member of uh, NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Sciences. And this, this was Davis's uh, notes based on a 2002 meeting he had, I guess in the backseat of a car, uh, with uh, Admiral Thomas Ray Wilson, who I mentioned earlier, who was at one time the assistant director and then later the director of the Joint Chiefs of Staff
2: correct? Do I have that right? You have got that right on the button there, Richard. You're a very good researcher in that regard because people don't know uh, where this document came from in some instances. But you can imagine back in 2002, uh, Dr. Eric Davis is sitting in the back seat of Admiral Wilson's staff car in the parking lot behind the EG&G building, At McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas, Nevada, and talking with the J-2, Joint Chiefs of Staff Second in Command, in charge of all of the military intelligence departments of every branch of the military, asking him for an hour and 10 minutes of what he knows about UFOs, these uh, unacknowledged secret access programs that are reverse engineering the technology. And um, the things that uh, he uh, has learned about the whole idea of uh, aliens visiting the planet, etc., it would it could have been. I, I can see the movie in my mind right now, Richard, <laughs> and I always think in the back of my, my mind that uh, uh, Tom Hanks was probably going to play you know Admiral Wilson at that point. You know, try to get to the bottom of what's going on. Right,
0: right, and and so and then what uh, uh, Admiral Wilson went on to tell uh, Dr. Eric Davis, uh, really can only be described as disclosure. (laughs) I mean, here we have the, uh, I guess, the second most powerful man in the Pentagon, uh, the, the Director of Intelligence for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, telling him that, yes, I discovered one of these special access programs. Uh, can you go into a little more detail what he, he revealed to Dr. Davis about how he found out about the special access program and then what he discovered yes. once he tracked down uh, the, the individuals behind this special access program?
2: Oh, yeah. It's just a fascinating story. It is a story that is going to make an amazing film at one point, I'm sure. But, you know, this whole thing started out with uh, Admiral Wilson in about uh, 1997, uh, April 9th, to be exact, I understand, uh, when Ed, when Edgar Mitchell, the Apollo uh, A- A- 14 astronaut, and Dr. Um, Stephen Greer actually got an appointment to debrief or brief Admiral Wilson. Um, it was probably Edgar Mitchell's pull that got them into the Pentagon to be able to talk with Admiral Wilson to begin with, uh, because, of course, Dr. Greer in his disclosure project uh, was also involved with uh, Edgar Mitchell uh, and some other folks, high ranking military in the background that uh, literally thought that Admiral Wilson should know what was going on on some of these black projects, these unac- unacknowledged special access programs that uh, they felt he didn't know about. So I had this meeting and a briefing. And what happened was Admiral Wilson was totally blown away. He says, this this can't be I mean, I'm in charge of these programs. I am in charge of all the unacknowledged special access programs. Why don't I know about what you're telling me? So they gave him a, a briefing report with some some telephone numbers and those kinds of things. And a couple of days later, Admiral Wilson starts to make a few inquiries on these phone calls. And I can just see the scene right now where Admiral Wilson is making the original uh, initial phone calls there about, uh, listen, I understand uh, that uh, you folks are into uh, re-engineering or reverse engineering of uh, super secret, potentially alien technology. Uh, Tell me about that. (laughs) He's making a few phone calls. The funny thing is, he was probably thinking that he's just going to get hung up on and people will just laugh and say, What are you kidding? Uh, you know. But what happened in reality was he started getting referred to two and three and finally one special access program manager who, literally, these people were saying was involved in this alien reverse engineering process. So he actually gets this guy on the phone. Uh, and of course, he's just flabbergasted when he gets a call from J2, uh, Admiral Wilson, saying, uh, tell me about your uh, alien reverse engineering program. He's going, uh, uh, Admiral, I, uh, I really can't talk to you about this over the phone, but uh, uh, I will call you right back and set up a face-to-face meeting. So that's what happened. And Admiral Wilson, in the, this, all of this, this is in the memo, by the way, so if people have not seen or read the actual 15-page memo, it's all over the internet. All you gotta do is, you know, uh, Google the term Admiral Wilson Core Secrets Memo. It's a fascinating uh, story. And he goes out uh, probably to the West Coast, we believe, uh, to meet with this uh, independent civilian subcontractor uh, and the program manager, Uh, the security director and uh, who used to work for the NSA, by the way, the security director and their corporate attorney, Uh, the three gatekeepers, they call themselves, to this unacknowledged access program that has no government oversight, no congressional oversight, no military oversight at all. And initially they are asking Admiral Wilson, how did you find out about us? This is almost impossible that anyone should even yourself uh you know and he's they're being very deferential to his position of course but uh they are telling admiral wilson that he, he is not on their bigot list which is the term of art for people who should have a need to know about their program of course uh, you can imagine uh admiral wilson uh, potentially as a tom hanks kind of character getting totally upset about the idea that they are not allowing him access to what they are doing. And initially, I think Admiral Wilson was uh, uh, thinking that he's going to probably find a, a technical reverse engineering program, maybe dealing with Soviet or Chinese technology, that was probably using UFOs as a cover-up to kind of keep you know people off their backs. Right, thing. right. Because um, that's how the um, initial part of the meeting went. They actually met in a a Sith, a secret information facility where you cannot, you know, get any electronic uh, uh, interference or uh, recordings at all in that kind of a thing. It's only, you know, verbal. I I
0: always think of the cone of silence on Get Smart for those old enough to know the reference.
2: (laughs) Oh, that would be perfect. Exactly. It's a whole room of a cone, cone of silence. Exactly. And they're sitting there and Admiral Wilson is quizzing these guys about what they're doing. Uh, At one point, he gets totally frustrated and he threatens to go to his Pentagon associates if they're not going to give him the information that he wants. And uh, I thought this was a funny part of the memo where it says that program manager then looks to his security uh, director and to the corporate attorney for direction on how to deal with this admiral during their secret meeting. Uh, And at one point, the attorney, believe it or not, turns to the other two and says, go ahead and tell him.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I took a little pride in that. The fact that there are attorneys moles deep within the government also doing uh, calling the shots in some regards. They decide to bring him in at least partially to what the heck they were going on. And they mentioned that decades ago, literally they had come across, retrieved a, um, uh, Amazing technology that was not of this planet, not made by human hands, is what they're saying in this memo. Now, Admiral Wilson is saying, Well, are you talking about Soviet, Chinese? Are you talking about earthly technology? He said, No, not of this earth, literally. And at, then at that point, he starts digging further. Uh, And comes up to the fact that uh, actually, during this retrieval of this alien technology, uh, that literally there were bodies retrieved as well. Alien bodies, and it's mentioned that in the memo, both dead and alive, uh, were retrieved in this process decades ago, and they were still in the process of reverse engineering. The technology at that point. Now, the, the meat of the matter of the memo actually goes on to state that uh, at this point, uh, they tell the, the Admiral that the, they have in their possession a working craft that can travel through interstellar space, through our atmosphere, of course, underwater, and through dimensions. Uh, I can't, I, when I read that, well over a year ago, the first time that Grant Cameron gave me that document, I'm thinking this is high, about the highest level confirmation I can see and hear about of anybody talking about retrieved technology, alien visitation on the planet, but let alone interdimensional travel or reality. Back
0: to more of my conversation with Michael Hall, the paranormal lawyer. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the Dead Files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love Tales of the Paranormal, but if you want more... Happy Price! Go to your Happy Price! Priceline! It's time once again to welcome Colleen Forges, our nutritional expert and the manager at Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Colleen, welcome. Hi, Richard. How are you today? I'm terrific. But a lot of people are in a bit of a panic. A lot of people are stressed with this whole coronavirus thing. But people just need to keep calm. What do we have to help people calm themselves?
1: Richard, there's a product called MagSoo, Mag being short for magnesium. And this is a powder which is a fat acting, calming raspberry
0: lemonade flavored powder. Magnesium is important for over 325 functions
2: in the body. It helps to promote a restful sleep. It's good for muscle tone and function. It helps us to balance our stress response. Good for blood pressure, blood sugar, digestion, hormones. It has a wide variety of things that are important for the body, but especially helps with stress.
0: Terrific. To get your mag soothe, just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the Full Script Dispensary button. Remember, all orders receive 10% off and orders of $50 or more ship for free. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider.
1: As you're staring up at the night sky. Ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard. You know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. (laughs) Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Michael Hall is
0: here and we're discussing the UFO document Leak of the Century. A 15-page memo written by scientist Dr. Eric Davis after his... 2002 meeting with Admiral Thomas R. Wilson of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and they were discussing an unacknowledged special access program which was back engineering UFO propulsion systems. If there ever was a document that could be described as the smoking gun or the Holy Grail this is it. And if I'm remembering correctly they also told Admiral Wilson that the progress had been painfully slow they, they knew it could fly, but they couldn't figure out how.
2: Uh, they couldn't get it to do those things. Um, do I have that right? Yes, you're exactly right. There was the frustration that uh, Admiral Wilson felt in these three gatekeepers telling him that due to all of the stove piping that they have to deal with, the compartmentalized uh, issues of security and clearances, that they were painstakingly slow in being able to reverse engineer this alien technology, the idea being that they don't necessarily have some of the best scientists or minds on board because obviously they all have to pass uh, security clearances and uh, be stovepiped in their own areas of expertise. So indeed, if one scientist is probably one of the best in the world, uh, they might be getting clearance, you know, to work on a certain aspect of the project, but they are not allowed to share their information with other colleagues that could help them in that regard, you know, get to a final conclusion on this thing. So it's been so frustrating, I understand, for these um, unacknowledged special access programs and the restrictions that they have uh, in their working process. And um, the bigot list, those with
0: the need to know, did did Wilson, um, was he told who else was on the bigot list? Did he have knowledge who else was on the need to know list?
2: Funny you should ask. That is a great question for a follow-up, because indeed, during the memo, he is actually shown um, an updated, at that time, version of their bigot list. And literally, he's, uh, Admiral Wilson is stating in his interview with uh, Dr. Davis in this staff car behind the EG&G building in Las Vegas, Nevada, that there were no um, White House uh, personnel on this bigot list. There were no Pentagon personnel on this bigot list. Uh, there were no uh, congressional members or staffers on this bigot list. By the way, I want to dispel a little bit of information about what the name this bigot list, this bigot list idea shocked me when I came up with uh, reading the memo for the very first time. Uh, Why would they use such a term like a, uh, a bigot list? And what I found out in my research is that this came from the World War II planning, literally, of the um, invasion at Normandy, where at that point they would send intelligence officers to the Isle of Gibraltar to start planning their invasion of Europe uh, during the Second World War. After the war, they used a shortened version of uh, Gibraltar to Jib, and then the intelligence communities of the military. Uh, and the, uh, the government used to take that same uh, term and reversed it instead of uh, Gibraltar or Jib to it. And that makes sense to me now, or they actually would shorten it to a, a racial term or something like that. So anyway, that's a short answer to uh, the interesting idea that there were no people on that list that Admiral Wilson could see that had a major oversight of this whole program. And he was astonished at that.
0: So, uh, confirmation really that the whole UFO file, uh, crash retrieval has been, uh, privatized, farmed off to, uh, the research and development of, of, uh, major corporations, maybe in the aerospace industry. Uh, in, in other words, um, the um the whole the whole thing has been privatized nobody in public life it would appear uh has a right to know
2: not even the joint chiefs of staff second in (laughs) command of all the intelligence departments of the military can you imagine that exactly um you know and we're talking of course uh richard the whole idea of, of philip corso's book you know the day after roswell where supposedly uh he in the foreign technology division Uh, was in charge of farming out some of this alien technology, supposedly, to private industry. And uh, you would imagine that if a gentleman uh, of the need-to-know level of uh, Admiral Wilson uh, was not read into this program, uh, that just brings shockwaves and uh, a lot of angst to the whole idea of who is in charge of these programs and literally... Uh, do they have our best interests in mind you never know and uh, you know people often
0: ask uh, Edward Snowden the whistleblower had access to all of these documents the NSA and so forth and he wrote a book and he as Snowden did and he said you know I, I didn't find anything about UFOs in there and now we know why he wasn't looking in the right place
2: uh, yeah, and or
0: he doesn't want to tell us, <laughs> right? That's a
2: possibility as well. Maybe he, uh, maybe he values his life quite off, uh, quite well, and I, I would agree with that for sure. Um, I can't imagine. Matter of fact, the interesting thing about the Admiral Wilson memo is literally there has been a black hole of response uh, uh, regarding this uh, document that has just been very unique. You would imagine. Of all the people, there are so many people named in this document that are still living, so many programs and program directors and projects that uh, you would think one of them would come forth and vociferously deny at least any involvement in this program. And literally, there has been nothing, silence, up until February of this year. And Dr. Russell Targ. I don't know if you remembered what happened when he actually confirmed that his colleague, Eric Davis, actually was the one who interviewed Admiral Wilson. And he said that in a conference um, uh, that was in West Virginia in February that just really kind of shook me to the core. This is the first confirmation that anybody has ever made that this memo could be real.
0: Right. Uh, Russell Targ from the Stanford Research Institute who worked alongside uh, Ingo Swan and Hal Puthoff on this, uh, um, well, researching uh, ESP and remote viewing and, and things like that.
2: Yes, actually. Um, it was a fascinating uh, confirmation for me. It wasn't, uh, he, he what he said actually was, Um, that this involves the Admiral Wilson uh, memo, which was leaked on the Internet, which my colleague, Dr. Eric Davis, interviewed Admiral Wilson regarding the subject of UFOs. And then he added, which was kind of interesting, he said, and since this involves an ongoing program, I cannot comment any further on it. Ah, interesting. I thought that was interesting.
0: So what is... Obviously, Doctor uh, Davis stands stands by this, but uh, and and Admiral Wilson. Well, at the time, he wasn't an admiral. I believe he may have been director of intelligence for the army or the navy. Yeah. Uh, obviously, had career aspirations. Was exactly. I'm guessing he was warned uh, or told in no uncertain terms not to speak about this. Otherwise, you know, he can forget about uh, the J
2: two position. Exactly, Richard. And that brings us to the last blockbuster page of the 15-page memo. And in reality, at one point, Admiral Wilson does get disgusted, leaves the meeting, and decides he's going to go back to his colleagues in the Pentagon and complain about what's going on here. Because he had enough information to realize something's going on behind his back. And on the last page of the document, there is a curveball Uh, thrown at the uh, ufology community in the fact that when he uh, goes to his friend, Jacques Gansler at the Pentagon, a high-ranking government official for decades, to talk about his problem with this subcontractor, Jacques Gansler tells Admiral Wilson, wait, you need to back off on this subject. Uh, If you pursue it any further, you're going to lose a couple stars, No retirement. You won't get that advancement that you're looking for, you know, and uh, you probably uh, will have a lot more problems than you even think about. So Jacques Gansler then, at the end of their conversation, admonishing Admiral Wilson, then throws the curveball. He says, by the way, UFOs do exist. Alien abductions don't exist.
0: Ah, interesting. That is a curveball.
2: And I have a theory of this curveball. It's very interesting that the details involved in this 15 pages line up with everything that all of us in ufology and the paranormal have thought of and heard about over the decades, ever since Roswell, New Mexico. Except for that last dig from Jacques Gansler on the last page of the memo. Now, I'm thinking to myself, if I was someone tasked with the um, idea that, listen, um, if uh, if Admiral Wilson goes rogue on us here, we're going to have some problems. So if he comes and talks to you, Jacques Gansler, I want you to tell him a little bit of disinformation as well, just in case he uh, decides to uh, spill the beans on us. Uh, even the UFO community is going to discount what he says if he says that UFOs exist but alien abductions don't exist. So I'm thinking that potentially Jacques Gansler was tasked with the opportunity there to give him some disinformation at the last minute as a uh, kind of a security measure uh, in case they didn't know which way Admiral Wilson was going to go. respond to this being admonished
0: right kind of a poison pill discredit him
2: yeah yeah
0: fascinating um and the the retrieval site do we do we know was it roswell was it the aztec ufo incident in 48
2: you know that is not clear in the memo no they do not matter of fact there are some questions uh that admiral wilson asks of these uh, gatekeepers at this, uh, uh, you know, civilian uh, program. But uh, periodically throughout the memo, multiple times Admiral Wilson will say to uh, Dr. Eric Davis, who is asking the questions, Admiral Wilson will say, the answer to that question you're asking me is a core secret. I can't go there. Core secrets seem to be very important for the military. The idea being that a core secret is anything that, if it became aware or out in the public at all, it would totally destroy the meaning of the entire program. Uh, And there were multiple times throughout the 15-page document where Admiral Wilson is saying, um, that is a core secret. I can't go any further to tell you about that.
0: So where do we go with this next? What, what, what do we do with this information? Who's pursuing? Who's tugging on the loose threads?
2: Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Richard. I think you're going to be very encouraged to hear that I've been in touch with uh, some of the young gun ufologists out there. Uh, you know who they are. Uh, you know, these are the guys that uh, literally have access to social media and the Internet and uh, the back chans of truth out there that have been doing a lot of research. And my understanding is that very shortly, maybe within the matter of a few weeks at this point, there will be some further corroborations of people and places in this memo that are being uh, mentioned that can be corroborated by independent research. So I'm excited for the next uh, uh, few areas that are going to pop up here that will actually Give us some more meat to chew on and show us whether this memo is true and correct uh, or whether it's uh, you know, a hoax. We'll find out.
0: Well, that certainly sounds promising. Um, just a, a few moments remain, but um, you, you mentioned the, the uh, December 2017 New York Times uh, article. Uh, along with that uh, article, uh, there was an infrared video recording of uh, an F-18, F/A-18 uh, uh, gun camera footage uh, of an incident that occurred back in uh, 2004 that involved some U.S. fighter pilots attached to the Nimitz Carrier Strike Group off the coast of uh, San Diego, down towards Baja, uh, California and Baja Mexico. Uh, and I understand. I know things have been kind of uh, derailed because of the, uh, the coronavirus and so forth. But uh, uh, there were plans in the work, you were involved with uh, uh, plans in the work for a, uh, a cruise with some of the members of the Nimitz Carrier Strike Group who have come forward about this radar visual encounter with uh, these strange crafts that have been called, uh, well, they resemble Tic Tacs and hence the Tic Tac UFO incident. Uh, first of all, what's the status of that
2: cruise is that still going forth at some point you know the status of the uapx uh, organization and expedition is still on richard it's very exciting uh, of course they're they're thinking uh, of course you know this is something that i think we could even accomplish with the uh, social distancing if we had to it's not like we need to have a crowd of folks you know in an audience to uh, to do this but uh Uh, Chief Petty Officer uh, Kevin Day, who was in charge of the radar ship of the Princeton that actually first sighted these uh, tic-tac-shaped 40-some foot long UFOs uh, traveling from north to south around the Catalina Island area uh, in 2004, November of 2004, uh, has uh, formed this group called uh, UAP Expedition Group. And I uh, was brought on board to help them uh, create the nonprofit business entity uh, to put this thing together. And of course, um, uh, we've got uh, the vice president of the organization is Gary Voorhees, another veteran of the uh, Nimitz UFO encounter, and many of the other veterans also that you've seen on television now have banded together and decided that, you know, with all of the technical gear that we've been able to garner. FLIR photography, night vision, you know, all sorts of sensing uh, gear uh, to take back out again uh, during, by the way, the time of the whale migrations that happen in the wintertime. We're planning going back out in December of this year to see if we can contact or at least record some scientific data regarding these Tic Tac UFOs again.
0: And um, for those not familiar uh, with the USS Nimitz uh, UFO incident, again, this was uh, a radar visual encounter of a number of identified uh, flying objects. They resembled Tic Tacs. Uh, The maneuvering was out of this world, uh, going from 28,000 feet down to basically sea level and then underneath the ocean, uh, in in the in the blink of an eye, I mean, just there, n- nothing point, that we have 0.78 point seven
2: is, eight point seven eight seconds, less point, than one second. Right. Can you imagine?
0: Unam- no, I can't. I cannot imagine. I mean, I, yeah. I, I remember in the listening to the or seeing the video and hearing the pilot uh, pilots talking about how they had locked on to this object, and uh, one of them commented that it's a drone. It's a drone. Well, we have nothing. We have <laughs> a, 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 There's nothing that we have on this earth that's capable uh, of, of that. Um, and then at, w- at one point, uh, I believe it was a female uh, pilot uh, who made visual contact with this large craft. I think she described it about the size of a 737, uh, just partially submerged beneath the, uh, the waves uh, as well. And then these tic-tac-like objects kind of flitting and flirting around this partially submerged object. Um, and all this was captured on uh, on the gun cameras and uh, the radars and so forth. One of the interesting things was that, um, I'm not sure if it was the gentleman that you just mentioned that was aboard the Princeton, uh, but a helicopter arrived on the deck. Two uh, gentlemen in civilian clothes came out, uh, took all the data. Uh, I mean, how did they... How did they get to the ship so quick? They were about 100 miles off off the coast of California.
2: Uh, how did they get there so quickly? Exactly. Um, you know, the, the, the people that I'm working with from uh, both the Nimitz and the Princeton were just amazed at the fact that uh, not too far, too long after, Commander Fravor and his uh, wingman, uh, which was uh, the female pilot, and both of their Wizzos, you know, their weapons information service officers that sit in the back seats of those FA 18 jets, when all four of them came back after their mission uh, to be debriefed and to go through their normal processes, it wasn't too long after they landed. A helicopter shows up out of the middle of nowhere, literally, and one of my uh, veterans aboard. Uh, the uh, Nimitz says that they came down with the uh, captain of the ship, by the way, uh, and came into his uh, area where he handles all of the memory for the computers on the ship. And they the uh, captain told him to hand over the bricks, he called them to these civilian guys uh, in suits. Uh, and he did that and they were off, took off on the helicopter and were gone and never seen again again. They were amazed how quickly that happened and the fact that this kind of thing uh, would happen on aboard the ship. The idea of them taking the actual memory of the events uh, and spiriting it off the, off of the ship at that point was very unusual, they say.
0: And uh, these uh, veterans have had to live with this for, for 16 years, um, holding on to this information. Perhaps in many cases feeling uh, as if they were being marginalized and uh, ridiculed and so forth, uh, and now uh, coming forward and um, g- give us the details what you know of the uh, of this planned uh, a conference involving these these members of the strike group.
2: Well, I'll tell you what uh, it's very interesting that uh, at one point uh, after the event, uh, and this was years after the event because. Uh, Chief Petty Officer Kevin Day actually wrote an actual book of this incident uh, that he uh, just self-published, uh, you know, after the incident that uh, didn't go anywhere uh, because, indeed, he was, uh, with with the rest of the veterans, marginalized and not really told not to talk about it, but no one was interested in hearing their story. Let's put it that way. Uh, so, well after the fact, uh, Commander uh, Kevin Day and some of his other colleagues did some research and found out literally that, you know, it was quite a coincidence that this 10-day period that they were citing the uh, various flights of these tic-tac UFOs uh, five and 10 at a time over a 10-day period seemed to correspond almost exactly to the whale migration period during that 2004 uh, winter. So um, when, when I heard that idea, Um, they decided that they were going to now uh, work with the Scripps Oceanography uh, Institute to find out indeed when the whale migrations are happening again uh, in this year. And of course, that's uh, around December of this year, 2020. And to uh, kind of maximize their efforts in that regard, if there's any connection at all, if, for instance, these... uh, alien potentially uh, craft are interested in in whales, for instance. If, for instance, they're even communicating with the whales, how about the Star Trek movie scenario, Exactly, yes, yes. That kind of stuff. Um, We thought, well, why not? We'll maximize the whole idea of going back out during a a similar period of time when the whale migrations were happening. Now, here's the the interesting twist to that. I'll try to be quick for you here. Uh, But Literally, since it could have something to do with the whale migrations, I went to a friend of mine who is in a group that I have founded called the UFOI team. And he is a real technical freak and a very good researcher. He has invented a pair of binoculars that will turn light frequency into sound and vice versa. So I told uh, Dave Mason, I said, Dave, could you possibly broadcast into near Earth's atmosphere sounds of whales while we're doing our skywatches with our flare photography, our night vision, our all of our extensive gear, and just see what you get. I'll cut to the chase, Richard. He found on tape, we've got it on our um, Facebook page at UFOI Team, tic-tac-shaped UFOs when he was broadcasting whale sounds into the near earth's atmosphere so i don't know if there's any connection we're going to keep pursuing that whole idea for sure
0: that's remarkable that's remarkable and we can see the footage on the facebook page
2: yes uh if you uh if you go to the uh ufo i team on facebook uh we've got video galore up there that we've posted all of our sky watches and you know scientific data that we've uh, uh Accumulated. And of course, the UAPX organization has their own Facebook page and website, uapx.com, uh, and on Facebook. And they've got, they intend to put up all the footage that we gather in this uh, new expedition as well.
0: Fantastic. Well, uh, Michael, I can't believe we haven't talked uh, before, but I'm glad that we, uh, we've squared that away. And uh, I look forward to speaking with you uh, again uh, in the uh, not-too-distant future. It's been a delight meeting you.
2: Richard, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Okay, before I
0: dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash with a few words about an upcoming episode. I want to welcome a brand-new sponsor to Conspiracy Unlimited, and I couldn't be more proud to be associated with the good people at Hero Soap. It's owned by veterans, and their products are outstanding. Their soaps contain no chemicals, dyes, or fragrances, and they come in these really cool resealable packages. So you can take your soap with you on the road instead of using those gross hotel soaps or take it camping. I'm using the Peppermint Cool Soap, And the moment I started lathering up, I felt a cool, refreshing and tingly wave wash over me. I felt more clean, more refreshed, more alive. And not only does my body feel refreshed, I feel good on the inside, knowing that the Hero Soap Company supports veterans. Sign up for the hassle-free monthly auto ship, and you'll never run out of quality natural soap again. And you'll save 10%. Plus, for every soap purchased through the subscription, one soap is sent to deploy troops around the world for free. If you want to get clean and feel refreshed and support veterans all at the same time, check out Hero Soap at HeroSoapcompany.com. HeroSoapcompany.com. Look for the banner ad at StrangePlanet.ca slash conspiracy show and in the episode notes for this podcast. Hero Soap Let freedom clean. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, a former card shark for the mob discusses the divine intervention that saved his life and how he turned a 52-card deck of cards once used for gambling into a powerful tool for personal transformation.
1: I had just fed the horses, and I was sitting on the ladder coming down, and these demons were just tormenting me and saying, kill yourself, kill yourself, end your life. You're no good for nothing. You have no hope for the future. It's, it's all over with. And so I walked across the barnyard over to my garage where my gun was. I just had to reach inside and grab my twenty-two, and we always had a twenty-two for chicken hawks and coyotes and stuff like that. And so my gun was always loaded. I was always ready to go. And I walked over and I put my hand down to open the door and walk in and get my gun. And I was going to put it in my mouth and pull the trigger. I was going to end it. Until
0: then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.